And the wow. concept that one bowel movement per day is normal comes from relatively small studies done in the UK, Sweden, US, and other high-income countries. Okay, wow. so just think about that. So all of these bowel habit benchmarks are Western, are from high-income, Westernized countries where we eat a standard American fifty percent of calories ultra processed, probably thirty to forty percent animal-based foods, and less than ten percent. So some of the foods. most fiber deficient populations in the world with high rates of irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticular disease, colorectal cancer, and generally awful digestive health. So now we've taken our benchmark mm. for bowel action from the countries with the worst digestive health in the world. So why, 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 why shouldn't, shouldn't we be taking our information from other countries where people have really good digestive health? Hello and welcome to the Happy Parrot Podcast. Hello. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. We're eating chocolate. Doing fabulous. We're eating chocolate. We're sitting here eating chocolate. It's very nice. You've already eaten quite a lot. Of well, you didn't today. really. Think it was that well, a lot is quite relative. Well, it was Tio's birthday this morning. Well, oh, I didn't eat cake on the beach today. Steve did. Oh, dude, dude, came down with this lovely kind of Turkish cheesecake, and then I, I've got really, vegan cheesecake. I've got into the habit of like intermittent fasting, so starting brekkie at ten a.m. and really enjoying it. Like actually waiting till I'm hungry because so much of my life is food everywhere, and you can be a bit of a glutton. And just having that boundary, I find really, really good. And then this morning, my wife went, "It's your son's birthday. Come on!" I was like, "Okay." And we had a bit of uh, Turkish cheesecake, vegan cheesecake, and it was beautiful. Oh, How many birthdays does Theo have now? Uh, you know, like, like, okay, so all my kids are different, as most children are. And, uh, <laughs> most Theo, humans are. Yeah, most humans. Theo loves being the centre of attention, so he could have 100 birthdays and he'd love it. Yeah. It would never be too much. It's so. literally since Saturday, I've yeah. heard, oh, we're doing this for Theo's birthday. We're yeah. doing it. <laughs> Lucky Theo. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have a third one tonight, too. Um, do you know, I was just thinking there, Today, I think I've never talked so much about digestion in my whole life. And pooing. I think, yeah. Um, probably because... We our, don't talk about pooing, though, do, do we? As, as a human race, I, or well, at least in Ireland, we don't talk a lot about it. But today, Sweden, we certainly have... Much? Don't think so. But they're very practical. So maybe they kind of do in a more practical way. Like, mm. do you... I mean, obviously, you're married, both married now, so it's maybe a bit different. But, like, with your, fir like, initial stages of girlfriends or whatever, would you talk freely about poo and well no I, and like like even there i was saying that like you know that and this is probably a situation that most people can relate to that you're early on in a relationship and you go to the first night over in a hotel and it <laughs> like it's got those super skinny walls between the toilet and the bedroom <laughs> just going to the toilet and like you feel the pipes running and you know, and you know like you're you know it's the first night with someone that you don't really know and like you're you get into the bathroom and you're lying in the toilet bowl with paper <laughs> and you're like doing the kind of how do i do a quiet poo dance how do i do a quiet poo and I do, I, in the shower do i synchronize the flushing with the poo yeah. like there's all these kind of things going on i think everyone can relate to that yeah but it's funny because it makes you think like hotels are generally obviously some people do just stay in them but like majority for us anyway it's like oh it's a romantic time away but there's nothing <laughs> very romantic about no. that moment you there think they might those, design uh, them i remember we stayed in a friend melissa hemsley's house and melissa's very cool and has a wonderful house and I remember in her toilet, she had this thing that you used to spray in before you did your poo and it trapped the smell. Oh, I know that. And it was just like, 
Oh my god! No, I know that in in London because yeah. she's from London. Yeah, yeah, I remember. There's a name for it. It literally is like trap your poo or something like that. There's a name for it, and in, in London because we used to have that in the office, and it's it's genius. Mm, wow. It really works. This little drops that you put in the toilet first, and it just eliminates. Or the there smell. was there was someone else came up with the tactic that as soon as you drop it, if you flush, the smell's gone. Like it's almost <laughs> like it's like what? it's almost like a golf swing that you've got to like. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Just for the listener there, if you're feeling in any way uncomfortable, this topic is about digestion. I think as a human society, we need to be willing to talk about it. Well, the reason why I brought it up was actually, I mean, we're about to talk about digestion and many other things, by the way. So do listen. But um, was because we're doing the gut health revolution. Oh, yeah. That's coming up. Yeah. Gut health revolution. Yeah. So who's anyone, anyone who's interested in the gut, as you'll find out in this podcast with Dr. Al, he's amazing. He's wonderful. And your gut is really, it is another organ within your body. It's the control center of human health in terms of, you know, energy, wellness, immune systems, hormones, like it's so central to so many various things. And at the moment we are in a state where most people's gut are not in a healthy way. So we need a gut health revolution. We really do. And saying that it just so happens we've got a gut health revolution course starting on April 11th. It really is. It's, um, it's a four week course that's really putting this the leading science in terms of gut health to the test. It's really making it experiential for you. It's eating a plant-based diet for four weeks. You can step it up or you can jump right in. Um, one of the one of my favorite parts of it is there's consultant do, consultant gastroenterologist, Dr. Al, then there's dietitian Rosie, and then we have Simone Venner who's coming in as, as a holistic, mindful practitioner to help because 70% of IBS, or that's um, irritable bowel syndrome, which is an umbrella term, uh, occurs due to stress. So it's kind of a very practical aspect to addressing people's digestion and improving their overall health. Yeah, so whether you have like bloating, IBS, or the other leaky gut he even addresses. All, all so of those many things. Well, well, there's things. so many digestive issues, but it really, it comes down to kind of, there's, there's a bunch of lifestyle factors which you can do that greatly impact it. And this is a four week, really, it's a journey in terms of good health, all things good health. It starts April the 11th. There should be at least a thousand people doing it. So you're doing it with lots of people. Uh, and this conversation with Dr. Al, our dear friend, is wonderful. It was one of, we got to do it in person. So it was a real honor. And Al kind of took the gloves off. Like, Al is a friend and I've like, we've done loads with Al over the years, but this was like, he really took the gloves off and showed his science and showed just how deep his knowledge. Short chain of, fatty acids. I was fascinated about that, about what they so do. Much, and, you know, yeah, was like even of, down to the weight of your poo, depending on your diet, was pretty fascinating. No, that sounds, most people wouldn't be interested in that. You were fascinated with it. Yeah, you know, we asked that, you earlier, okay did you weigh your poo? Mine was one weird. kilo. Anyway. You did uh, weigh your breakfast though. Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. So, Which uh, was one kilo now. 1.4. 1.4 kilos. 1.4 Yeah, I was doing it, making a chia seed pudding the other day. And you know, in a perverse sort of way, you pick it up and go, that's really heavy. And then you kind of go, I wonder how heavy it actually is. Most of it's water. Yeah, but I went and weighed it. It was 1.4 kilos. That has to come out of you at some point. I know, yeah, yeah. There you go. Typically 500 <laughs> grams come out. Well, 90% is water, so... Anyway, anyway, right. <laughs> Excuse our rambling around. So uh, we give you a conversation with the wonderful consultant gastroenterologist. We, geez, we haven't mentioned anything about Dr. Al. So Dr. Allen is amazing. He's a wonderful dear friend. Dr. Alan Desmond, consultant gastroenterologist. He's a glorious human. He's written a book called The Plant-Based Rep Diet Revolution. He is, he's been a consultant gastroenterologist for 10 years. He's Irish and he lives in Devon and he's class and he's entertaining and he's practical and he's deadly. And we love him. Yeah, and we love him. So this podcast is with him. It's the second chat that we've had with him and it's really enlightening if you're into good health, which I hope you are. 
And uh, yeah, without further ado, we give you a conversation with the wonderful consultant, gastroenterologist, Dr. Alan Desmond. Uh, amazing to have you here in person, real, genuinely super honour. No, it's lovely. You're, you're, you're the fifth person we've had in person, so we don't actually know how to do this. <laughs> well, then, this is like where last time we did it on Zoom, I was at the hospital in a like a quiet room, uh, and it's been lovely to be here. And thank God, I mean, it's two years since we hung out together. Two years. It was when we did the Southwest Plant-Based Diet Challenge over in Shaldon in the southwest of England. You guys came over. We went to the school. We went to you know we had all that, uh, but we didn't know what was going to happen over the next two years. You know, so that was we, a fun dream as well. I like the way you described it this morning. We were going over to try to make. Shouldered into blue zone. Yeah, that was yeah. The I think we did it. I think we did. It. I mean, we got 150 local doctors, GPs, dietitians, nutritionists. We had a school teachers. We had a firefighter, um, and they all went plant based for 28 days, and really enjoyed it. It was amazing. It was such a positive, lovely, vibrant experience. And of course, me the, being the nerdy doctor, then you know, I got them all to measure everything. You know, they lost five kilos in body weight, dropped their blood pressure by 14 millimeters of mercury, dropped their bad cholesterol by 30 percent. 98% of them finished with a healthy cholesterol after 28 days. So I think we did kind of create that blue zone magic because even now it's two years later and with everything we've been through, I and mean, we talked about the last time we did the podcast together, the pandemic, you know, um, I mean, people are so much more aware now of the importance of the food they eat and their diet and their lifestyle. And all of those lovely people who took part in the Southwest Plant-Based Diet Channel experienced it for themselves and learned how to talk to their patients and clients about food. And now, even now in 2022, we have the uh, Whole Life Program with uh, Dr. Jenny Corser and dietitians and coaches. And uh, I think a lot of the uh, GPs who took part in that program can now refer people in to this Whole Life Program. Cool. We've got so this lovely... And whole, is it a kind of plant predominant? It's, it's whole food plant-based. Yes, whole food plant-based. Cool. And Jenny's put together all these great recipes and cookbooks and everything. And... Um, so it's still happening. The the, the ripples are, are still happening from that. You know, it's great. Wow, that's a great yeah. one. That's brilliant. Uh, so Al, gut. Let's talk gut. All things gut health. All like it really is. Cause, and even even on the main thing, like um, so, like it's often referred to, like I feel it in my gut. Like follow your gut instinct, or you hear lots of people talking about their intuition and what whatever. And I guess it's referred to very often as your second brain. Um, and I, I wonder, building on that, so say evolutionary our brain is kind of a fear detecting mechanism and it's kind of a, a, a tool with which to ensure our longevity and in my experience the more i can live less in my brain and more in my gut i feel more in a state of flow i wonder is there science relating to that i wonder could you also talk about why gut health matters well it, it's just i mean having a healthy functioning digestive system is just a critical trait of being a healthy human Mm. That's one of the things that really attracted me into gastroenterology as a, as a specialty and as a practice. Because if you have poor digestive health, your quality of life, your overall health, and even your longevity can really be affected negatively. Mm. So as a gastroenterologist, you get to meet people who've got digestive health problems and help to make them better. And that's really powerful. It's, it's really, really powerful. And there's so many reasons for that. I mean, I mean, number one, digestive health is the ability to enjoy food. And food is so important to us. We wake up in the morning, we've, you know, you're thinking, well, am I going to have a breakfast? You're planning your lunch. You're on your way home from work. You're thinking, oh, what are we going to do for dinner tonight? There's so much pleasure based So much food. pleasure based in food. We've, you know, we've been up to the beach this morning. What Breaking do do? bread. Breaking been... bread with porridge. And it's so social and so important. We, 
We have meals for birthdays and anniversaries and weddings and religious festivals. So food and the ability to enjoy food is really crucial on a human level. And if you lose the ability to enjoy food, it has a huge negative impact on your quality of life. So, you know, I see and deal with a lot of patients with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. It's not a phrase I'm a big fan of, actually, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. But so these are people who have got digestive symptoms on a daily basis, bloating, constipation, acid reflux, discomfort, etc. We can talk more about that and later. And it's a kind of generalist umbrella term for yeah, people it's an umbra- with... with- irritated bell. Yeah, exactly. It's not a phrase that I, I, I prefer to use the phrase um, functional digestive problems. You know, like things are, are, everything looks okay on the scan or the endoscopy, but it's just not working right. You know, what can we do to improve the function of your digestive system? But it's often referred to as irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. So often um, IBS in the medical world is kind of minimized. You know, people are told, oh, don't worry. It's just IBS. You know, we've done all the scans. It's just IBS. And like as in, kind of live with it, get on with it. Just live with it, just get on with your life. But can you imagine the impact of not being able to sit down and enjoy food with your friends or family or go for that meal or go to that restaurant or have that bowl of porridge? And it's hugely underestimated. I remember reading a study from the Merton College of Gastroenterology a couple of years ago that said that the average person with severe irritable bowel syndrome who have been reassured, don't worry about it, you know, just get on with your life, that the average person with IBS would give up 10 to 15 years of their life expectancy for an immediate cure. Oh my. So, so that's how important digestive health is to people. And if you look at people with Crohn's disease, for example, a form of um, inflammatory bowel disease, so a, a very prevalent condition. Is Crohn's a more like on the spectrum of good health, say there's IBS, so this is a symptom you know, to do with functioning is Crohn's just further on the spectrum, whereas so, you so kind of, it's become is, more ingrained and yeah, more so deeper. I guess Crohn's is more recognized as a disease process rather than a functional disorder, because not only are people getting terrible digestive symptoms, but parts of their bowel are red and sore and inflamed and they can get abscesses in their tummy and, and like, anemia, etc. What takes it from being like a syndrome, like irritable bowel disease, to or how does it suddenly go to suddenly be classified as a disease? Is it just further down the spectrum? But, I guess with, within more medicine, if you can, you know, so with Crohn's disease, for example, if you do a camera test, like an endoscopy or whatever, you can see it. There's redness and soreness. You can sample it. You can put it under the microscope. You can scan it. You can treat it. You can develop medications to treat it. You can gauge the response. You can do an operation for it. Okay. So I suppose that's when we use the term disease, where sometimes we use the word syndrome when someone's unwell, but we haven't yet figured out how can to I, explain can I ask, it. Can I ask a question there? See, so another way, like... Uh, like, so your your bowel and particularly, you know, your small and large intestine and right down the end of your, you know, digestive tract. If you, if someone does have like Crohn's or IBD or one of those kind of things where it is inflamed and there's aggravation, and this kind of redness and soreness, like two of the, the biggest anti-inflammatories are uh, turmeric and like wheatgrass or any of these super antioxidant rich foods. Has anyone done any research trying to, when you actually put those, um, well, I don't know what the technical yeah, no, term right. is. So you, you put it nice, in through the back door. It's a nice word, a nice for, word for, yeah, for where so you go. Enemas and things like that. I mean, yeah. there's, I mean, well, first of all, repository. Repository. You take it through the back door and you, you kind of like just soak it in that and see if it well, heals well, that way. I mean, look, when Because the body's an incredible capacity to heal. No, you're right. And when we're, I think when we're dealing with 
you know, certainly in my practice when I'm dealing with something. For, so we'll take example, you mentioned specifically colitis. OK, mm. so that's a condition where there's inflammation in the lining of the bowel. When we put the camera inside and we look at the lining of the bowel, instead of being healthy and pink like your cheek, like the lining of your cheek, really, that's what the lining of your large bowel kind of looks like. Instead of looking like that, it looks red and sore and it's got ulcers. It looks like it's been badly Ooh. sunburned. And then, you know, you're rushing to the loo, you're losing blood and all that sort of stuff. It's very unpleasant. So the first thing we do is we work on the overall healthfulness of the diet. We push people away from processed food and animal products and towards uh, plant-based sources of nutrition, et cetera. And we use that in more severe cases in combination with these wonderful medications that we have. Like we've got um, uh, five SA drugs, we've got immune suppressants, we've got biologic drugs. Like the technology is really amazing. But in, in my practice, like the healthy diet and lifestyle and the medication are equally powerful tools that complement each other. But so that's where th the conversation starts, right? But it's interesting you mention that because there are so many um, kind of traditional um, medications or foods or extracts, like you mentioned, uh, curcumin. Mm. So curcumin actually is one anti-inflammatory compound that's been studied in great detail, specifically in ulcerative colitis. So the, the condition you asked about, and it's Curcumin is an extract from a turmeric mm. and it's been used in like Ayurvedic and Eastern medicine for a long, long time as an anti-inflammatory um, for things like arthritis and headaches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it has been studied in ulcerative colitis. It's actually incredibly effective. Uh, so, uh, but my, my point was that, so if I take it through my mouth orally, like... Well, there's I, been I studies on wondered, both. There's been I, studies on both. I always wondered that like, you know, the body is super incredible. Like I take it into my mouth and somehow it knows to go to the sore bit in my gut. Yeah. And it's like, that's assuming that like, I don't know, the body's an incredible mechanism that you'd almost kind of think that, well, if it's down at the end of my, if it's easier to go through the back door to get it closer, like, why don't I put it in that way and try, you know, that well, you're probably going to no, get a bigger bang for your book going. No, you're right. But I mean, it's been specifically for curcumin, we've seen studies. So for ulcerative colitis, for example, we would start with those treatments that I mentioned. You have your basic tablets and sometimes suppositories, denomous, healthy dietary change. And if patients aren't getting better at that point, traditionally, the next step would be to bring in immune suppressing steroids or anti-TNF medications. So these are wow. these are wonderful medications and they help a lot of people improve the quality of life, but they also come with a significant, you know, certain side effects and everything. And you, you don't prescribe them lightly. But for those patients in particular, there's been some great randomized controlled trials looking at giving people curcumin. So two grams, three grams of curcumin per day as a, you know, it's a turmeric extract getting maybe 80% of those patients into remission. Wow. And why is that? It's because wow. curcumin targets many of the same inflammatory mechanisms that our modern drugs target. Mm. You know, like hitting the same interleukins and tumor necrosis factors and all of these inflammatory signals that our medications are targeting. You can do that with curcumin too. And side effect profile is very, very good. People sometimes get a little bit of um, abdominal discomfort with it, but it's a very safe medication. But I think a lot of practitioners in the gastroenterology world don't, haven't really looked at that research, you know, but certainly it's something I recommend because to my the, patients with mild to moderate colitis and all is the time, you know. Because it's more like almost like a dietary supplement as opposed to, you know, yeah. a technological yeah, medicine. Yeah, exactly. And there's plenty of other dietary supplements that are, that are put out there, but there's no evidence to support them. But curcumin has been the subject of several randomized controlled trials endorsed by the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization as a useful treatment for patients with ulcerative colitis in particular, you know. Wow, wow. Uh, okay, uh, this, this would lead me on 
onto something which I know you're super passionate about. So a quote which you often, which we we got from you, is that statistically in the UK now about fifty five percent of all calories are ultra processed calories. So that means we so much junk food, so much more over the last kind of number of years. And in Ireland, it's something like 50%. In the US, I think it's something more towards 60%. And I just wondered, like, how is the current gut, like the average person, Joe or Mary on the street, like, how is the average person's gut today? It's not good. I mean, we've spoken before, but this whole concept, you know, all health begins in the gut. That's a very old fashioned concept. And even where does that concept come from? Like, what's the... Well, that, that was Hippocrates uh, 2,500 years ago, you know, telling his disciples all health begins in the gut. Well, he actually said all disease begins in the gut, but it's, I guess it's nice to put yeah, a positive yeah. spin, you know, with yeah. apologies to Hippocrates that all health begins in the gut. And, you know, even then, two and a half thousand years ago, he was teaching his disciples, you know, the kind of very basic principles that would ultimately develop into modern medicine. But he taught them a lot about food, you know, uh, let food be thy medicine is not a concept attributed to Hippocrates, but also all health begins in the gut. And he would teach his disciples that when they were trying to help people to get better, they should look at food and food intake, etc. And in the last 20 years, we've learned that there's a lot of truth in that ancient wisdom that, you know, gut health really does matter. And if your gut health is poor, then your overall health is poor. And a lot of that comes down to the food that you're eating. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, we get 50 to 60 percent of our calories from ultra processed food crisps and maybe, and, ma- yeah maybe yeah if you can uh, yeah even so, explain what those so basically foods. these are the foods like the, the food industry since about the 1950s has hit on this concept that you can make food not in your kitchen but in a factory and you can take out all the perishable stuff you can take out the fiber and then you can mix in flavor enhancers and emulsifiers and they've developed uh, artificial carbohydrates like maltodextrin and all these flavor enhancers that make these products, these food-like products, taste like something you'd like to eat. So you can take a little fruit cake off the shelf in your filling station that's got an expiration date like in three or four months' time, right? And you can eat it, but it tastes moist, like it's just been cooked. And your, your kind of primitive brain goes, oh, this is lovely, this is comfort food. But of course, what you're tasting is an artificially generated food matrix that's been very carefully designed to appeal. But these junk foods aren't food. They contain more sugar, more salt, artificial flavors and emulsifiers. They're usually low in fiber. I mean, very simply, think about the difference between an apple and an apple Pop-Tart. You know, an apple being the original, the apple Pop-Tart being the uh, being the ultra-processed version. You know, all, all the good stuff is taken out, all the fiber and the phytonutrients, the beneficial stuff that a healthy gut thrives on. And instead, we put in all these junk food chemicals that demonstrably negatively impact your gut microbiome and your digestive health. But that's only one aspect of the standard Western diet that's problematic when it comes to gut health. Of course, the number one would be fiber deficiency. So we don't eat fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes anymore. In the in the in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., Ireland, etc., those foods, which are the foods that have benefited our gut health and kept things ticking over nicely and improved human health and digestive health for generations have become, you know, maybe nine to 10% of our calories. The rest of the calories coming from animal products, you know, 100 kilos of meat per person per year, coming from saturated fats and dairy and highly processed foods. And for many people, those foods make up most of their calories. And that's not the person's fault. I'm not shaming anybody here. I'm not stigmatizing anyone here. In a way, I'm kind of shaming and stigmatizing the system. 
that that's where our food systems have led us yeah, in order to make these kind of cheap, shelf-stable foods that are easier to manufacture, easier to ship, easier to put on the shelf and leave there. Easier to make profit. Easier to make profit. Easier to make profit. And what's the result? Because we're eating the standard Western high meat, high dairy, high processed food, high ultra processed food, low plant, low fiber diet. Our digestive systems have never seen anything like this in history. Humans have been around for 100,000 years. And people can argue about whether ancient humans were hunter-gatherers or gatherer-hunters or plant-based apes or whatever, you know, we'll never know, okay? But, like, the evidence is very, very clear that a this new standard Western approach to eating isn't good for digestive health in any way. And then you look at... And, and, and how do you classify that? Like, is that down to... Because I know, like, the gut is made up of... A micro, you know, a microbiome, which is a collection of bacteria and microorganisms in your gut. And how do you actually determine, you know, does someone have a good gut or a bad gut or a healthy is gut it, or an unhealthy largely gut? largely down to the diversity of the different well, strains and the proliferation. Well, the first thing I would say is like, you know, even without understanding the science behind it, you just have to look around. So we talk about standard Western diet, also called the standard American diet. Mm. Okay, so originated in the US, probably, you know, pre-war, post-war refrigeration came on. The ability to produce, you know, microwave meals and all that kind of stuff. You know, one built on top of the other, fast food joints, McDonald's, McDonald's and all that, you know, just kind of kind of dominated the food system, created. Now we've got a situation where food deserts exist and dietary intakes are generally very poor. So what's gut health like in the country that invented the standard Western diet? It's terrible. So irritable bowel syndrome, so digestive symptoms, bloating, constipation, etc., affect 45 million Americans. One in five Americans has gastroesophageal reflux disease. So one of the most commonly prescribed medications on planet Earth are antacid medications, things like proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, uh, ranitidine, uh, famotidine. These are medications that switch off the acid secretion in your stomach which is a really important of healthy digestion and normal digestion. But tablets that switch that process off to try and put a lid on the indigestion and dyspeptic symptoms that one in five adult Americans are living with. One in three US adults under the age of 50 have a condition called diverticular disease. These little pouches that form in the side of the large bowel of people who habitually eat a low fiber diet causes abdominal pain, discomfort, uh, abscesses, it can even cause perforation. I've taken care of patients over the years who've died from diverticular disease. It affects one in three adults under the age of 50, costs the UK health system $2.5 billion a year. In the US, the UK, Ireland, Australia, bowel cancer has become so common that it affects more than one in 20 adults in their lifetime. Now, there are still countries in the world, there's still populations in the world where bowel cancer is almost unheard of. And if you go looking for it, you won't find it. Um, so like in rural Africa, for example, the studies have been done that you don't get precancerous bowel polyps in middle-aged people living in rural Africa with a rural diet and lifestyle, with a high fiber uh, diet and lifestyle, 50, 60, 70 grams of fiber per day. They don't get precancerous polyps. They don't get bowel cancer. Now, I'm not saying they don't have other health challenges. They obviously do, right? But that, that, that disease is a standard Western diet disease. In the, in the US, we've got a condition called uh, fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So this is a condition that you get, which is largely driven by the standard Western diet, refined sugars and animal fat, 
drive the deposition of fat on your liver. And we think of fat as just being, you know, this extra tissue that sits on our tummy and it just sits there and it's inert. But it's not, of course, you know, excess abdominal fat and visceral fat is a pro-inflammatory tissue. It drives inflammation in your system. And inflammation and is the root of all disease. Inflammation, really. again, is, very, is a common thread that runs through so many diseases, like chronic unchecked inflammation. So if you've got fatty liver disease, you, you run a risk of developing uh, hepatitis, really, an inflammation of the liver that we call non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, <laughs> which affects about, you know, NAFLD, fatty liver disease, affects about 100 million Americans now. I think wow. it affects about one in four adults under the age of 50 in the UK. And it's become the one of the leading causes of chronic liver disease. One of the main reasons now for people needing a liver transplant, where in countries like the UK and the US, we've always associated with excess alcohol, right? You know, people get, they drink too much alcohol, they get cirrhosis, and they end up needing a liver transplant, right? But wow. one of the leading causes of needing a liver transplant now isn't alcohol anymore, although it's still up there, obviously. It's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is largely driven by a standard Western diet. So, I mean, which is animal-based foods and refined processed, refined, foods. you know, saturated fat, animal protein, low highly processed foods, low plant wow. intake, low fiber intake, and of course, low fiber intake is just it, it, is it, just it, a proxy for low vitamin C intake, vitamin C intake, vitamin A, vitamin E, phytonutrients, antioxidants, and all the other stuff that goes with the plant fiber. Because you can only get those beneficial compounds by filling your plates with the same foods that our digestive systems have been working on digesting through through the history of 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 the human race. You know the fruits and the vegetables, the whole grains, the legumes, the nuts and the seeds. And it's no, I mean, you've probably had a lot. Of, well, I know you have because I listened to the podcast. <laughs> you've had a lot of people on talking about other aspects of health that are benefited by eating this time. It's the same answer. It's the same. It's the same approach to food, you know, like eating like the healthiest people in the world is eating like that. And, and as a gastroenterologist who deals with the sharp end of these conditions all the time, takes care of people who are really suffering, their digestive health is really suffering, either from a life-threatening condition, like some of the things we've discussed already, or just, you know, conditions like acid reflux or bloating or IBS, that's really negatively impacting their quality of life. I mean, when you go, when your patient says to you, well, how should I eat? What foods do you recommend? When you go and you look at the evidence and the, the same signals are coming through, whether it's preventing fatty liver disease or reversing fatty liver disease, whether it's preventing colorectal cancer, whether it's preventing bowel polyps, whether it's, you know, reducing your risk of developing Crohn's disease, reducing your risk of developing diverticular disease, it just comes back to the same thing. Healthy, unprocessed plants in variety, ditch the junk, ditch the dairy, milk is for babies, animal products are optional, should make up a small amount of your food. If you're eating red meat, the safest amount to eat, probably none. But you could probably get away with having maybe red meat once every couple of weeks but you should always view it as optional. And on that day, when you have that piece of red meat as a, as a maybe once a month treat, just remember that even on that day, if you had a bean casserole instead of a beef casserole, you're still making a healthier choice on that given day. So a whole food plant-based diet, which is you know uh, the way that I ask my patients to move towards, ticks all the right boxes for excellent gut health, you know? So that, that's really as a gastroenterologist, that's what's led me here. That's why I'm sitting here recording yeah. this podcast with you guys, you know? 
She's amazing, almost frightening to hear just the impact that the modern diet is having on people's gut health and at society at large. One thing comes up with that is when you spoke about the one of the most predominant medications is acid reflux. Like, what is the the need for that reflux? Like, what function does it have? If I eat food and acid naturally is secreted to break down, you know, typically, acid. yeah, which will secrete and break down foods, and then that reflux is that. What function does that have, and what does the suppression of it lead to? Just curious for, for someone listening who uses it a lot no, and it's kind of going, oh, I, I take them lots. What, what's, what happens well, here? There, there, there are certain medical conditions where we do recommend staying on those medications. Mm. Okay. So if you have a thing called Barrett's esophagus in particular, precancerous changes in your esophagus, then those medications on balance will benefit you. And there are lots of people for whom without those medications, their quality of life would be very poor indeed. Okay. So I'm not railing against them mm. and I prescribe them, but I think they should always be prescribed with healthy diet and lifestyle advice so that you can reduce your need for those medications. And maybe instead of using them every day, have them every other day. And if things are going very well, maybe wean yourself off them and only use them as needed. And have mm. you seen many people come off them by just changing their diet and lifestyle? Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. So when you eat food, I mean, the, the human digestive system is incredible. We said, we said earlier on, okay, so eating food and digesting food is incredibly important socially. But of course, it's like the essence of being human, right? We really are what we eat. So our bodies are made out of proteins and fats and carbohydrates and minerals. This is the stuff we're made out of. We're, and where do we get that stuff? Food. Food. We eat it. We really are what we eat. I mean, about 15% of your body is protein and it has to be replaced and regenerated all the time. Where do you get that protein? You eat it. You know, so food is is in incredibly important, and one and of the e e even on that one, because any I'd say half the people listening here have gone, oh, you said that word protein, but you're talking about a whole food plant based diet. Like, where the heck do I get my protein? Like, if I need fifteen percent, if I need it to regenerate all my cells in my body, like, where do I get it from? Like, maybe if you can just, I know, because you could talk about this for the next two hours. But and protein. this is probably the question we're asked most. most as yeah. like, could the, you even just touch on that for a minute? The protein so question. So 60 seconds, protein question. First, with of all, Dr. Desmond. first of all, I think when people ask that question, I, it doesn't bother me um, because it's a really important question and it's really important uh, to answer that because where you get your protein is incredibly important and it's a really important determinant of your health and longevity. Um, so where do I get my protein is incredibly important. And if you get your protein from plants, Statistically, you're going to have a healthier life with less risk of common diseases, including Crohn's, colitis, um, bowel cancer, heart disease. All the studies tell us more plant protein, less animal protein is the key to preventing those conditions from happening. But protein, we think about protein, really what we're thinking about is amino acids. And when we eat any food, our amazing human digestive system goes to work extracting the building blocks that it needs to continue feeding our body and our, our amazing metabolic processes and making all the enzymes and hormones and signaling mechanisms and energy in the mitochondria and the neurons. You know, it's like, how do we fuel that whole system? We fuel it with food and oxygen and water. So if you eat any food, your body, when specifically for protein, is on the hunt for amino acids. Those are the building blocks of protein. So where do amino acids come from? Amino acids come from plants. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, Only nuts, seeds. Because you hear that expression that all protein comes from plants. And yeah, that's, that's where it originates, right? So the amino acids is what we're really talking about. So beans and legumes are particularly high in protein content, but there's protein in every plant. I mean, spinach. Like watermelon. 
like watermelon, even rice, apples. even rice, apples, they all contain some protein. And in fact, although I'm not recommending it, but if tomorrow, um, Dave, you decided that you were just the only thing, I'm going on a spinach only diet. I'm not recommending it, okay? But I'm only going to eat spinach today. I'm going to eat two and a half thousand calories of spinach. Oh, sounds awful. Yeah, you're going to be busy, that's right? Lot, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta that's do, a full day's work. That's there. a full day's work. Okay. What you do at work today, Dave? I, I ate spinach I all ate day. A barrel load of spinach. Yeah, like Popeye, right? But you're gonna, you're going, you'll probably get between seventy and ninety grams of protein that day, because there's so much protein per calorie in spinach that you'll get double your protein needs for the day. And then the next day, if you say, okay, I've done the spinach only diet, but then I'm going to do the uh, whole grain rice only diet. I'm only going to eat whole grain rice today. You probably get about 60 or 70 grams of protein that day if you eat sufficient calories. And then the next day you say, okay, I'm only going to eat lentils today. I'm going to do a lentil only day. Probably get about 110 if you eat two and a half thousand calories, which is what you need. You're, you know, you're a growing boy, fit and active. I think I need 3,300. 3,300. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But you're, you're, you're still, you're going to get about 100 grams of protein that day. But of course, and, reason, and how much does the like, well, well so, the, re, the average person need about maybe 60 grams of protein per day. So you're going to be eating more protein than you need. Okay. Wow. But you know, I've talked about spinach day, lentil day, rice day. But of course, you don't eat like that, but you do eat spinach and rice and lentils and kale and sweet potatoes and mangoes. And all of these foods contain various amounts of protein. And when we look at these studies, like the, the medical evidence is very clear that individuals who eat a strict vegetarian or vegan diet and eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds, whole plants, and that's where they're getting their calories from, they consume between maybe 70 and 80 grams of protein per day, which is more than enough for any healthy living person. And the top 5% of those individuals consume about 100 grams of protein per day, which is a huge amount of protein, which is twice the amount that the average person would need to consume. So vegans and vegetarians eat enough protein. And not only that, they're getting their protein from from plants instead of animals. So if you decide to get your amino acids by eating uh, beef, because mm. um, now that, that, that cow has eaten all those plants, you know, and has eaten all the silage and grass and feed and all that sort of stuff that they're given, and they've gotten their amino acids from that, and they've used those amino acids to make their muscles just like we do. But now instead of eating the plants, we're gonna eat their muscles to get their protein. So we're now getting the amino acids through the cow or the chicken or whatever. So you're almost getting it secondhand by you get well, yeah, animal. you get exactly right, and you're getting it. But you can, get, I mean, the human digestive system is incredible, right? I mean, there are very few foods that could escape human digestion. You know, we are designed <laughs> to digest food, and we can digest meat and chicken and all that kind of stuff, and we can extract the amino acids that we need from them. But it's about the package. So now you're getting your protein, but you get animal protein. You're getting animal amino acids. So now you're choosing to get your amino acids um, from foods that are loaded with cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, and are wrapped up in saturated fat. And when you cook that piece of red meat or that piece of chicken, you're exposing it to heat, and you're generating chemicals like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And heterocyclic- How do you remember all these words? And, so heterocyclic, words. and heterocyclic amines. So, so these are like, it's like a science experiment. I remember being in medical school and anyone who's studied um, organic chemistry will know that if you take a living tissue 
and it's full of all these chemicals that are biologically active. And, you know, animal hormones are biologically active. I mean, before we had modern drug synthesis, for example, if you had thyroid deficiency, you would be given little pills that were ground up thyroid gland from pigs or, wow. or cows. Or if you, the first insulins that were given to people with diabetes were animal insulins, you know, like, like insulin that was extracted from the pancreas of a pig. So because we're so genetically close to these animals that we eat, our, the, the substances, the biologically active compounds that are in those animal products are actually, you know, they interact very nicely with human tissue and human biological systems. So if you take a piece of meat or a piece of chicken or whatever, and you expose it to that kind of heat, it's like a science experiment. You're putting energy into the system. You're generating these new biologically active compounds, including PAHs and HCAs, which when we intake them, they're pro-inflammatory, they're pro-oxidative, they age us, they cause damage, where you're also getting your protein wrapped up with heme iron. Oh, yeah. So heme, heme iron is the form of iron that's in animal products. We get non-heme iron when we have black beans. We get heme iron when we have beef. You know, we talked about the beef stew and the, mm. the bean stew earlier, right? So a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but heme iron is way more bioavailable. You absorb it way better. So, so, it's mu so therefore, it must be better for you. But of course, it's not better for you. And we know that the more heme iron you, cons you consume, the higher your risk of developing something like bowel cancer or heart disease. And heme iron you get from animal-based food. You get from animal. You can only get it by eating other animals. Wow. And it's a pro-inflammatory compound. And just because it's got more in the lab, it's more bioavailable. People will use that as an argument towards eating meat. And the meat industry will say, oh yeah, we got bioavailable iron. We say, yeah, but don't you know that the studies show that the more of that iron that you consume, the, less like, the more likely you are Jeez. to have an illness or, or, you know, including bowel cancer, et cetera. And then you've, you're getting your protein wrapped up with other chemicals like sodium nitrites and nitrates that naturally occur in meat and are added to processed meats to make the them look pink. Of, the amount of detail, you know, like I think anyone listening would go, oh my God, like Dr. Alan Desmond, you are so smart. Like, you know so much and you've, you've come around to a whole food plant-based diet. Like, you know, and like, it's probably, you're not a typical kind of like someone that would go, well, you're like a vegan plant-based kind of guy. Like you wouldn't, like, you know, you're a, you, you studied for, I think it was like 13 or 17, 18, I believe it was. I remember having this chat where you, you studied yeah. for a hell of a long time to become not just a doctor, a consultant gastroenterologist, which takes a long period of time. And it's probably like, even amongst your field as a gastroenterologist, there's probably not that many who are plant-based or are big advocates for this. Have you seen like, because you've changed since like since we, we've we've known you the last five or six years and you're an incredible, like your detail and your knowledge of a plant-based, like. And your practical, practical application. That's the thing that I think really differs you to many people. Lots of people mm -hmm. will espouse what one should do, but they don't often do it themselves. But you actually walk your talk based on what the science says. I, get, I guess my question is here is that like you've, you are incredible because the amount of information you know around it. Like you really do. Like anyone to listening to the systems. And like there's so much detail functions. going on here. And I'm kind of going within the field of gastroenterology. There's other people that are very smart mm. as well. Do you see that there's other people starting to kind of go, okay, well, like, you know, the gut, second brain, vitally important organ here. Like a fiber seems to be super important. You only mm. get fiber from plant-based mm. foods. Like why don't we encourage people to start eating more plant-based? Like, do you see a movement? Like, because I know there's other gastroenterologists in the US. What about in the NHS or in... Well, I, th I find, I find my colleagues incredibly supportive. 
um, more and more of my colleagues are moving more and more towards a plant-based diet. And that's not just me. That's mm. through their own reading and their own awareness of what's going on in terms of the research on digestive health. The concept of a plant-based diet being better for your digestive health is very much entering the mainstream. I was seeing more and more studies looking at that, even on, I flew over here from out of Bristol yesterday, and on the plane I was reading a paper that was just published. I haven't fully digested it yet, I need to read it again. But it was, but again, it's a, it's a study, I think it was a European study, possibly out of out of uh, Denmark. So just and in your spare time, you were just reading a paper for the crack, like just for the yeah. fun, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. paper, sounds class. Yeah, yeah, well, I love nerding out on the stuff, you know. And this is a paper done by a gut microbiome research center at a big center in Europe. And what the, the question they were asking was, um, do vegans have a healthier gut microbiome? So, you know, maybe five or six or seven or 10 years ago, the question that, that those sort of researchers would have asked is, uh, do people eat a Mediterranean diet have mm. a healthier gut microbiome? Because that was where the science was. But now that the science is showing us that you know, vegans, people who eat a whole food plant-based diet have lower rates of obesity and heart disease and type 2 diabetes. When we've got the official US dietary guidelines for treating type 2 diabetes recommending a plant-based diet. When we see all these various organizations like the American Cardiology Association recommending plant-based and Mediterranean or vegetarian diets to prevent heart disease. And a lot of the reasons that they're recommending that is because the gut microbiome benefits that we see from eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds. The research question is very much in the mainstream. Well, do people who only eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds and leafy greens, do they really have a healthier gut microbiome? And study after study is telling us that yes, they do have a healthier gut microbiome. So the study I was reading on the, on the plane yesterday um, just like sometimes you see these studies that look at small groups of people, but they go really in-depth. And what they showed, they took a group of omnivores and a group of vegans. Everybody's healthy. They're all, you know, a, a healthy body weight, not known to have any gastrointestinal problems, healthy volunteers. And they examined both the structure and function of the gut microbiome in both groups. And it was really fascinating because what they showed was um, when you do the kind of gut microbial headcount, like what kind of bacteria, what genera, what species are in there, um, there was a definite difference between those two groups. Oh, yeah. Now, but the difference only extended to about 15 to 20% of the gut microbes. It wasn't completely like black and white. There was a, still a huge overlap. Um, you know, they're all humans, you know, they're, they're all living in, in, in the 21st century. Um, but there was about a 15 to 20% difference in the constituents of their gut microbiome. Okay, as in, as in the bugs, as in the bugs. Yeah. But where it gets really, really interesting is where you actually look at the function. So rather than looking at what the microbiome is built out of, what is the microbiome doing? And what they found was that on multiple measures, the vegan gut microbiome was performing in a way that is more advantageous to human health. Reduced production of inflammatory postbiotics, reduced production of choline, which your body, excuse me, of trimethylamine, which your body makes from carnitine, from red meat and choline from eggs. Why is that important? Well, trimethylamine, which is made by your gut microbes when you eat those foods, uh, gets transported into your bloodstream, turned into trimethylamine oxide, TMAO, to pro-inflammatory oh, yeah. molecule, linked to heart disease and stroke and chronic kidney disease, even linked to poor outcomes in patients with colorectal cancer. The vegan gut microbiome isn't very good at making secondary bile acids, 
Why is that important? Secondary bile acids are what, what you get in your gut microbiome. If you eat a lot of meat and saturated fat and animal fat, your, your small intestine has to make a lot of bile to emulsify and digest all those fats and make them available to your digestive enzymes so you can absorb the nutrients that are in them. Your body will extract the nutrients from anything, you know, even hmm. animal fat. We, we'll find some use for it in the human body. But what happens is then you get all these bile, all this bile delivered to the gut microbiome. So now you're feeding the gut microbes that feast on bile. So now you've got to deal with their waste products, their postbiotics, secondary bile acids, pro-inflammatory, pro-carcinogenic, increased risk of bowel cancer, precancerous polyps, and in things like ulcerative colitis. But if you don't eat that food, then your gut microbiome gets really bad at making that stuff. So you're not, your gut microbiome isn't making those harmful substances anymore. But instead, your gut microbiome, what they found in numerous studies shown that people who only eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds and a huge variety of plants and that, their gut microbiome seems to be optimized for the production of beneficial compounds like certain vitamins and neurotransmitters and short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are important to human health. So the short-chain fatty acids made in your gut microbiome, preferentially when you eat high-fiber plants, made more preferentially uh, on average by vegans and omnivores. And what do they do for our health? Well, the benefits that you get from a gut microbiome that is really good at making short-chain fatty acids, there's so many of them, it's hard to keep up with the research. You know, we So they, they're generated in your bowel by the good guys by the gut microbes, they provide 70% of the energy to the cells that line your colon. So they are the energy source for your human cells. They're made by your gut microbes. Like wow. that in itself for is every fascinating. Cell, just for your- For the gut microbe, for the wow. cells lining the large bowel, the colonocytes. Wow. So if you're not getting enough short chain fatty acids, the colonocytes will get a bit dysfunctional, a bit unhealthy, a little bit leaky, a little bit red, a little bit sore. The short-chain fatty acids enter uh, uh, bind with special receptors in the lining of our gut and they interact with our body to help uh, promote the secretion of insulin by our pancreas, to help control our appetite. Wow. The short-chain fatty acids enter our bloodstream. So they move around our body. Again, this stuff is made by your gut right, microbes. Detail, right? and even, even just to bring it back up there, because even for me, there's so much information here. I'm kind of going, so for anyone who's listening and kind of going, okay, microbiome, it's a collection of bacteria and organisms. I know, I know myself that it's supposedly about two kg, like that's two kilos. And it's, you've got billions of these things in your gut and they're bacteria, they're yeast, they're fungi, they're archaea and they're viruses. And it's a collection of these things. And like from what you've said so far, so there's, Fiber, which you only get from plant-based foods, is vitally important for the health of these bacteria. Could you talk about, like, just even the top line for anyone who's listening about a micro, like, what is the microbiome? Yeah, I mean, you've summarized it very nicely. I mean, we live in a microbial world, okay? Humans have been, and apologies, we, we might be going back over material we covered previously, right? Yeah, but, but it's brilliant. But it's it's just, it's, even for me, I forget it. Yeah, so we are, we live in a microbial world, uh, you know, and I mean, you asked for a simple explanation, but it's hard to separate this from where we came from, you know? So uh, the very first living creatures on the earth, living things on the earth, were little microscopic things, viruses and yeasts and archaea and bacteria. So they've been around for billions of years. We've been around for hundreds of thousands of years. So as soon as we enter the world, as soon as we're born and we leave our mother's body, and maybe even before that, we are just like every other surface, like the microphone, the desk, everything here. We are covered in microbes. 
we live in symbiosis with these microbes. And as soon as we're born, those microbes begin to populate our body, you know, our ears, our nose, our mouth, every orifice, okay? But they also populate our digestive system. And our digestive system, particularly the large bowel, is a really great place to grow bacteria. You know, there's nutrients it's the there. Temperature. It's warm. It's, it's moist. Cozy. If several times a day someone sends some food down the pipe, you know, <laughs> so it's it's like a really good place to grow microbes. It's almost like you know the way when you're in holidays in a hot country, not like Ireland, in the middle <laughs> of summer, and it's really hot. Say for example, Italy, and there's some kind of stagnant water. And uh, it seems like it's 35 degrees, the stagnant water. I remember you talking about when you went to the rainforest in Borneo. Oh my or, God. or even in Central America walking through and just going, it felt like the air was alive. Like it was like just like things, things everywhere. They were growing out of your feet. Like, you know, there was, th every, there was things growing off you. Like it was just, so, the because it was so hot and temperate and, but, and, and but almost what, that's like our large intestine. But what you're describing there is a human's natural environment. I mean, those are the environments that humans evolved in, right? Equatorial, lush green Moist. areas where we're in nature. That's where yeah, humans yeah. evolved, right? So, I mean, but even if you want to make, if you want to make um, like a sourdough starter, what do you do? You mix some flour and water and you just leave it out on the counter, don't you? And it'll yep. pick up microbes. It'll pick yep. up yeast and it'll begin and to bubble. And even the yeast that are on the surface of the flour will just start to consume we'll start the to sugars work. in it. So what you're and, saying that's that, us. That's us. We're like an open jar. So, so, so you know the way, so you know the way you go around, like, and it probably the best example for our generation who were Alan's 43, 43, 44, something like that. You're something like that anyway. You're a similar generation to us anyway, where we remember Friends, that TV show, where there was Monica with Friends. She was a real, she was a clean, she was just so into cleaning and sterilizing and whatnot. And like, really, that's kind of like, if we live in a microbial world where there's bacteria everywhere, like no amount of spraying things and cleaning surfaces is going to really make us clean because there's bacteria everywhere, everywhere we go. It's just baked into life. Very much so. Yeah. But I mean, if you live in a kind of a natural environment, like you were describing the jungle of Costa Rica or whatever, you know, and there's no doubt that people who live in rural environments have a more diverse gut microbiome than people who live in sanitized environments. And we, we can even look at that generationally. You know, if you lived in rural Costa Rica and then you moved to Dublin City, um, by the time your grandchildren grow in, you know, grow up in Dublin City, their gut microbiomes will look like someone who's grown up in Dublin City. You know, there'll be less diversity, uh, less resilience. And is that, that part of the, because you know the way now there's 50% of for the first time ever in the last kind of decade, more than 50% of people live in urban environments than they do in rural environments. That must be having a massive effect on the collective human microbiome. It is, yeah. And I mean, it's difficult to quantify the effect that it has on human health, but certainly for gut microbiome researchers, it is fascinating, right? Because it's just one more aspect of how we're getting further away from our natural environments. I mean, humans evolved in natural environments. We're part of our natural environment, you know? And now, what, where do we live? You know, we get up in the morning, we have a shower, we freshen up, we put on clean clothes, we hop in the car, go into the office. You know, like you guys, I mean, you guys get down to the beach every morning. You're in the natural environment every single day, right? And you make an effort to get out into natural environments. But even you guys who are like poster boys for pushing back against the standard Western approach, we're going to spend you know, several hours here in, in, in this, in this clean, hours sterile every day on laptops and screens yeah. or whatever. Just yeah, so it, so it does, it does. And I mean, one of the things that we often talk to people like, you know, we covered on the Gut Health Revolution online course as well is, you know, spending time in natural environments. This It's not just about food, it's also about other behaviors. So spending time in natural environments. Uh, I mean, we know all the science showing how that uh, reduces stress, reduces 
cortisol levels, et cetera, but also benefits our gut microbes because that's where we get our gut microbes. They come from a natural environment. And as little babies, when we're just born, having a healthy gut microbiome is really, really important. And when we get that first human touch, a little breath of air, you know, we get that first cuddle, the the microbes begin to populate our digestive system almost immediately. And, you know, breast milk and colostrum, those first little sips of food, sure, they contain calories, uh, which are really important for that little baby to grow their brain and all those other amazing things that babies do. But the, the it also contains um, prebiotics. So fiber, soluble fiber to feed and bring on and help the development of the microbes that are beginning to populate our digestive system, the beginning to form our human gut microbiome. And we know that as, as little babies, you know, the microbiome helps the delicate immune system of the gut to develop, helps the capillary blood supply to the, to the bowel, which is crucially important for the, you know, for the health of our digestive system, its ability to uh, absorb nutrients, helps that to develop. And, you know, it's crucial to the development of a healthy digestive system and a healthy human body. But of course, that might sound like, wow, it's amazing. But it, it shouldn't surprise anyone, you know, because we live in a microbial world where but most people we're, don't we're know. symbiotic. We're symbiotic. We, 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 every, you know, when the very first, when the very first cell appeared on this planet that would eventually give rise to all of humanity. Know that for, I know what that was. Amoeba or something. That little amoeba or something. It was part of that of the planet's microbiome and it was surrounded by viruses and yeasts and archaea. And we're still carrying those bugs with us. They're with us every they've been with us every step of the evolutionary and pathway. And they influence us. You know, we we've On a huge a belief basis. in modern day society, we celebrate the individual. We said we have this concept of human agency and this sense of free will. And at the same time, we're fully interdependent on fully interdependent on these microorganisms that exist in our large intestine and they dictate a huge amount of how we feel of what foods we crave and dictate our actions in so many different ways and that sometimes i question is our agency as great as we tend That's to believe. We think i remember a few years ago you guys asked me to do a blog um for the, the website and stuff and it was like can you give some evidence-based tips for a healthy gut microbiome and i said okay i'll go and find some evidence-based tips and i just summarize them nice and neatly and it's, you know, eat a varied plant-based diet, spend time in nature, exercise, sleep, avoid unnecessary medications, right? And we could, for each one of those, there's plenty of evidence to support all of those things, that these are things that benefit our gut microbiome. But of course, those five tips for a healthy gut microbiome could be the five tips for a happy, healthy life, couldn't they? You know, yeah. five tips for heart health. Five tips for heart health, five tips for mental health, five tips for gut microbial health, five tips for neurological health, five tips to prevent dementia. It's, you know, it's these, so these very, very simple practices, but it's all, we're just one big system, you know? So people often ask, oh, what's the best diet? I mean, I was speaking to um, Jim Loomis recently, Dr. Jim Loomis, uh, wonderful uh, doctor who works in sports performance. You know, he's worked with some big uh, NFL clubs in the US and helped them to dial their diet in for athletic performance. And so what's the optimal diet for athletic performance? You know, it's 70% starchy carbohydrates, plenty of antioxidants and phytonutrients to help recovery and, you know, improve resilience and maintain your athletic performance. It's the same, same approach really is quite optimal for digestive health, heart health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, um, and gut microbiome health. 
Surprise, wow. surprise. So linked. And even, can, 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 can I say, can no, I say no, just, I've got one one is just a comment. It's not a question. I'm just going to make this okay. comment and then you can We're say We're both getting excited. Sorry. Because even you said, you said the word like the earth's microbiome. You said the earth's microbiome and then you like, because like, like some people listening might be going, okay, microbiome. I've got a microbiome, but like the earth is a microbiome. And it's kind of like, I guess my point is, because it's not a question, because I know Stephen's going to ask a question now and I'm not allowed to ask one. Um, Thank you, is David. That, uh, so we are, oh, there is one microbiome and we have, uh, we have a part of it. We are almost like separate little cells of the earth's microbiome. And like we live in a bacterial diverse world. And as you said, our, the bacteria thrive in natural environments because that's where there's loads of bacteria and we're in sterile environments. Our, our little core, we're almost like little nodes. We're almost like little nodes of the greater earth's microbiome. And we're all, you know, the more time we can spend, our, the Wi-Fi or the signal is better when we're out in nature because we're connected to all these other little uh, information sources, but when we're, when, when we're separated out in an apartment in the middle of a city, um, our microbiome doesn't thrive as much. So Good comment. Uh, Thanks, Steve. Okay, and this, this question, I believe there's no necessarily answer, but I just wanted to kind of go out there. Okay, so I, th I think I remember you talking about the American Good Project that was found one of the single biggest thing you can do to improve your good health was to eat a plant-based diet. And the second part was to eat a diverse and the magic number being 30. And just for anyone- At least 30. At least 30 different varieties of fruit and veg per week. Um, but- showing those other factors such as spending time outside you know being around different animals about sleep about avoiding stress about and this might sound strange but not washing as much i remember listening to another consultant gastroenterologist talk about and she mentioned that she found out that she was washing too much and through washing too much she was reducing her bacteria biodiversity and as a result her immune system wasn't as strong and she didn't thrive as much I that's wonder, Stephen's excuse why he doesn't wash yeah, as, much, yeah. as much as other people okay. I'm not saying he doesn't wash that's enough. his latest excuse yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> but but I just wonder over that spectrum of things there I think I mentioned about six or seven different things you know each one is a different entry point into health at different ways is, is there any one obviously food is probably the most prolific and the strongest and have the biggest impact straight away relatively the other ones are there other ones that are as stronger than others like spending time outside like can i have a go with that i'd say sleep is probably number two because if people don't sleep for six days in a row they're going to become psychotic so sleep i think is paramount importance because it's just so it's so essential i think it's the foundation of health along and with i think food. spending time outside you're more likely to sleep better because then your relationships are going to be better and you're going to be less stressed so i think that's prolific i think washing is good otherwise your relationships no we're crap, trying to answer this ourselves sorry know, over to you yeah, anyway well, it's just like everything. It's it's a summative, isn't it? And it's like trying to say that word again. It's summative. They all they all combine together. Summative. They, all, they nice all just combine together. It's like synergistic. A, they all overlap and synergistic and all that sort of thing. But there's no doubt about it. I remember speaking to uh, one of my mentors in the guy who really kind of lit my passion for the whole microbiome research when I was a young doctor, Professor Fergus Shanahan. He was um, a cork lad, wasn't he? A cork guy, yeah. And you know, he was just a great teacher and just also. Um, you know, I think he's authored and co-authored hundreds of gut microbiome papers and was one of the, you know, in the vanguard of that research 20 years ago and right up to even just a few years ago when he, when he um, retired. But I was talking to him recently and, you know, we we're just kind of checking in. He'd actually put a book out and my book was out. We were just chatting about that. We hadn't spoken for a few years. And he said, you know, Alan, you know, the top three determinants of gut microbiome health are food, food and food. So as adults, we can't minimize it. You know, we, we just can't minimize the effect that food has on our digestive health. And I mean, I mean, we've just had some chats just now that kind of we just went to the 
what are at the 20,000 feet view, right? We've talked about the history of the earth and, you know, and short-chain fatty acids. We've gone really, but, but what does it come back to on a practical basis in terms of preventing these digestive health problems? It just comes back to daily practices that are, that are very achievable and very doable. And you can make those changes very practically, uh, you know, in the, in the gut health revolution course, we have four threads to it four evidence-based threads to improving your digestive health we've got the food yeah. so we we gradually you can either gradually jump in or you can step it up every week where we just get you to increase the diversity of plants in your diet you don't have to go completely plant-based although we like you to <laughs> but you don't have to and we have a step-up meal plan where you can just gradually increase the fiber and the diversity um, we have those healthy lifestyle things, you know, you, you guys talk about community and time outdoors and exercise and sleep, really important. We've got the, the knowledge component. So that's the third component, me and uh, the amazing Rosie Martin, just answering all those questions, you know, what is SIBO? Do I need to worry about lectins? Maybe just talk about SIBO there, because I know that's I quite will. topical. I will, we'll come back to it. Okay. And then the fourth thread is mindfulness. But, and, and that's and, and why, because you made us, so so we had, a, we had a course called Happy Gut, which we ran for four years, maybe five years or something. And with Dr. Allen. With great. Dr. Allen. And we had more than 25,000 people through it. So we had loads of people through it, and it was really, really wonderful. And then we kind of changed it, and we readdressed, and we put all the learnings from that, and we created a course called Good Health Revolution. And in this one, you kind of insisted that we had a mindfulness aspect. Could you talk about why? Why the importance and of- And why stress is so damaging to our microbiome? Well, it's, it's, it's damaging to our digestive health in general, you know, and our, and our overall health. I mean, obviously, look, low-level stress could be a good thing if you've got an exam or you're running a marathon or you need to perform at work today. A little bit of stress is good. You're aware of that stress and it's, you know, that's, that's a good thing, you know, but- 21st century life is very stressful indeed, right? God knows we've just come through pandemic and everything, you know, so it's super, super stressful. We're always on the email. We've got demands, financial worries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're supposed to be everything to everybody. Life is stressful. And stress and digestive health are intimately connected. Often at clinic, I'll spend some time speaking to a patient who might do 15, 30 minutes, 45 minutes before they come around to saying to me, because we've talked about food and medication. We've organized all the investigations and things that we do in gastroenterology clinics, all the scans and blood tests and stool tests, all the rest of it. And the patient will kind of say to me slightly shyly, doctor, does stress have anything to do with it? I was like, absolutely. I'm glad you asked. And that's normal. Don't be embarrassed by that. Don't be ashamed by that. Everyone is stressed. And yes, stress affects your digestive health. So, you know, Steve, you've got excellent digestive health. So if you walked out of this room right now and you saw a horrible car accident or you received some, God forbid, terrible news, what will happen? You might feel nauseous. You might vomit. If, it's, if it makes you feel extremely anxious, you might run to the bathroom and have diarrhea. You might feel constipated for a few days. You might meet Dave for breakfast in the morning. And he'll say, oh, you're not eating your porridge. You say, yeah, I know my appetite's terrible. You know, this terrible thing happened yesterday. I'm still not quite right. And everyone would understand. That's normal. People get that. And that's a really good example of a, a psychological stress completely turning your digestive health on its head, reducing your gastric emptying, <coughs> reducing your appetite making you feel nauseous, slowing down 
the contractility of your gut. So you don't Contract- get contractility. We're learning a lot of words today. We're learning a lot of words today. And slowing down peristalsis. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I knew that one. I that's remember that one, one from okay. biology. And so that's just purely emotional response. So let, let's take that horrible experience that imaginary Steve just had and let's dial it down by 80%. So now you're just generally stressed out on a day-to-day basis. You're under pressure. You're going through a difficult time, whatever. Those same changes happen. So gastric emptying gets slowed, you know, which changes the environment within your digestive tract, which changes how you enjoy food, which means you're going to eat a little bit differently. So now you're, the environment that's provided to your gut microbiome is a little bit different. You'll have shifts in your gut microbial population. You won't be pooping so often because now you're eating less healthy foods and your gut contractility has been reduced by all of this stress. So it's, it's very, very linked. And if you don't, if you don't solve that stress... If, you know, I sometimes say to patients when they ask me that question, um, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. Are you stressed? Have you been going through a stressful period? And they'll say, well, well, yes, you know, we're selling our house or I've just gotten divorced or, you know, I, I lost uh, my parent or, you know, I am or, you know, I'm caring for my kid who's got special needs. I mean, this is real life, you know. And I will often say to them, well, look, I'm glad you asked that question because we're going to do some stuff for your tummy. But really, if we don't sort out your head, we're not going to sort out your tummy. So we need to find a way that is going to help you to reduce that anxiety and stress. And it can be incredibly powerful. And there was a, I mean, there's been numerous studies on the benefits. We talked earlier about the uh, the concept of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and how people find it so debilitating that they would give up a decade of their lifespan to get rid of it. If they could, it's incredibly debilitating. So there was a nice study done last year where they used uh, a mindfulness meditation for patients with this IBS diagnosis. And what they found is that 70%, all the, the, the prescription here wasn't food, it wasn't medication or anything. It was just a mindfulness stress reduction course. So they put these individuals on a pretty, you know, a pretty achievable mindfulness course. I think about 10 or 15 minutes of meditation per day. And 70% of the individuals found that their digestive health improved and that their symptoms reduced. And they got greater insight into how they responded to stress and how that manifested as tummy symptoms and the concepts of being present and reacting and responding and getting insight in how to react and react and respond to stress were significantly shown to really improve digestive health. So based on my own clinical experience, based on the research that's out there, when we put the course together, and this was the thing where we kind of moved forward from the Happy Gut course, because as you know, the Happy Gut course was solely focused on food. It was food, 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 food. But on this course, we not only do it with the food, we have the lifestyle stuff, but we had to have the mindfulness in there as well. We needed to have some component in there so that people who are doing the Gut Health Revolution course with the goal of improving their digestive health, that if they are someone who identifies that they are stressed, then they have that component in there as well. Because it, it, it really, it really, really works. You know, we sometimes call it calming the gut-brain axis. Yeah. You know, and it can be incredibly powerful. Very good. Wow. Yeah, because stress is something that's not often linked or even associated with good health. But, but it is once you say it there in terms of the emotional, you yeah. know, that when you say, oh, I'd, I've lost my appetite due to it, like, then it makes it far But that's also entering the mainstream in gastroenterology, thank goodness, you know, and I think a lot of, um, ar- around in, in the UK in particular, a lot of um, um, clinics for patients with digestive health problems will use stress screening. 
So when you turn up at the clinic, you will you do a questionnaire that measures how stressed you are in your personal life and then hopefully point you towards some resources. It almost seems like, uh, you know, the word gastroenterologist, like it almost seems microbiomologist sounds more cutting edge now because microbiome seems hotter and more cool and on trend, whereas gastroenterology sounds different. Just doesn't sound as good. I'm very proud of my title as a gastroenterologist. Oh, I, listen, I think you're fucking great, Al. I think you're amazing. <laughs> I worked very hard for this title. <laughs> I know you did. How many years is it against it? Um, well, it takes a long time to become a qualified doctor. I mean, that's that's the same for any health professional, you know. Um, so I went to med school in 1995, graduated in 2001. Then so was six, six years, years to become a doctor. Yeah, and then 2001 to 2012 to train up to be a gastroenterologist. So 11 years and 10 years practicing as a gastroenterologist. But I'm still learning every day. Like I said, I was so reading 17 years. I was, re I was reading a research a paper on the plane flying over here. You know, like the learning never stops, you know. Wow. Yeah, it really is amazing. Okay, we've got a couple of rapid fire questions here for you because I know, uh, uh, well, let's say this one can be rapid fire. Okay, SIBO. SIBO seems to be quite trendy. I've heard it kicked around a fair bit. And I'm just wondering, what, what does the acronym SIBO stand for? And what does it mean? Small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Very Small good intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so thing. I know that anyway, which I imagine it's something to do with like, you know, yeasts, because you often hear of uh, candida, these kind of things. Is it anything to do with that? Not really. Not good really. Effort, different, Dave. different issue, but Listen, good. Close. I'm having a point but at maybe, it. Maybe, no, no, maybe, it, may, it may well, there's a bit of overlap there. So I guess that's something that we're hearing a lot about in the digestive health world. And it's an entity that we've known about in gastroenterology um, for maybe 10 years or so. I, I think it's being misrepresented misrepresented a little bit. Um, sometimes on social media, I'd see SIBO being put forward as the source of all problems. I get a lot of patients who come to see me with fairly profound digestive health symptoms who need a workup. You know, they need to be checked out. But they've come to me firmly believing that the only thing that could possibly be wrong with them is this condition called, called SIBO. So... We talked earlier about our gut microbiome, which largely lives in our colon. Our, the gut microbiome is very microbial. Excuse, the colon is a very gut microbial rich environment. It's home to trillions and trillions of microbes. And as those microbes ferment and digest food to make the short chain fatty acids and the other postbiotics, it generates gas and liquid and postbiotic substances. Now, our large bowel is ready for that. The colon has evolved to cope with that. It's part of its function within the human body. Um, it's used to being one of the most gut, most microbial rich environments known on the planet, as well as right? Soil isn't soil kind of just as like proper soil is meant to be one of the only other places in the planet which is just as just as microbial rich as, as the human large intestine or you know other animals I large what intestines. What happens if you plant a human? No, <laughs> but but the thing is, the small intestine. <laughs> The small intestine, which is the, you know, the part of the, the digestive tract, which is further up, it links you like your stomach to your large buds, but 12 feet long, and it's a narrow, long tube. It's got a completely different mission in life. So that's where you do your absorption of nutrients predominantly. That's where bile mixes with the food to emulsify it. That's where you absorb your iron so and your folate. So that's where you turn food into you. Yeah, exactly. That's the where, the, that's where you. the majority of the absorption occurs. So that's the small intestines function in life, okay, basically. Yeah. And it's also um, got a different ecosystem, a different microbial ecosystem. It's got far fewer um, bacteria and viruses and yeast. It's got like substantially by an or by a magnet, order of magnitudes fewer bacteria living in it. So the concept of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is that the small intestinal gut microbiome 
begins to behave like the colon's microbiome. Okay. So that the, the colon you're referring to the large intestine. As a large bowel. Yeah, yeah. So for some reason, the bugs in your small bowel get disturbed or perturbed and start, the wrong sort of bugs begin to grow there or too many of the wrong sorts of bugs start to grow there. So now you've got fermentation and postbiotics and gas production and fluid production going on in the small bowel which isn't geared up for that. And what does that cause? It causes bloating, abdominal distension. In severe cases, it can interfere with the absorption of nutrients. It can, it can cause weight loss. It can even cause maybe inflammatory changes or permeability changes in the small bowel that are, you know, neg have a negative impact on human health. So that's the concept of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, most gastroenterologists recognize that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be a problem, but we don't really consider it being a disease in and of itself. It's more like a sign of a problem. So we generally, when we see someone who we think they may have SIBO, how do we deal with it? Well, what, some of the things that can predispose to it can be long-term medication use that can interfere with healthy gut colonization function. So, you know, if you're taking a lot of opiate painkillers, codeine, anything that can constipate you. Your painkillers are constipate you. We're used a lot um, in the 21st century. Things like codeine and opiates and fentanyl and morphine and MS content and all those things. They slow down your gut function. They can predispose you to gut, you know, gut microbiome problems like SIBO. Also, the overuse of proton pump inhibitors. We talked about this earlier. So if you've been on omeprazole or lansoprazole oh, yeah. for a long time, reduces the acidity in your stomach which perturbs how your gut microbiome is populated. So it gives you an increased risk of these wrong bacteria growing in your small bowel. But generally for patients with SIBO, we would generally recognize it as happening in perhaps older individuals who've been on those medications for a long time, but also in people who've got very profound digestive problems like Crohn's disease with strictures, or they've had an operation. So their bowel has been, you know, resected and replumbed. Uh, so they've got uh, little bits of their bowel. They're just sitting there growing lots of bacteria. Junctions. And if we suspect someone has it, we'll do a history and a workup. We'll check for Crohn's disease, celiac disease, and diabetes, et cetera. But sometimes we do use certain um, antibiotics to try and push that gut microbiome back in a favorable uh, direction. So we're familiar with antibiotics. We're familiar with probiotics. So here's another new word for you. Eubiotics. So a medication. <laughs> oh, I you were going to say prebiotics there, and I was like, no, I know, no, know that one. Say, you know that one. You know fiber and prebiotics. I almost but, think of a eubiotic like the eubin in a toilet. It's pushing yeah. it in the toilet, and that's what you're. In essence, this eubiotic is to push the excess growth of bacteria from the small intestine down into the large intestine. Yeah. Or into so the colon. push it. Put, that's a good analogy, actually. But but when you say eubiosis, we're trying to push things. <laughs> yeah. But everybody poos. Everybody poos. I mean, I essentially, we talk essentially, about we're talking that. about yeah, we're talking about next. poop here, right? But what we're doing here is we're pushing the gut microbes into a favorable direction. Okay, second but, rapid but, fire but question. If we don't, <laughs> but, but if we don't address, if we don't address the issues that led to that problem, like unhealthy diet, constipation, medication overuse, or underlying conditions, we're not going to fix the problem long term. And that's why I get a little bit nervous when I see companies offering mail order kits for you to check for SIBO at home and then they'll sell you some antimicrobials or something because it's like most of medicine you can't just take it in isolation you gotta look at the whole person you gotta take a history you gotta and it sounds like the basics like as you said there it's the basics like whether you're talking gut health heart health skin health weight whatever it is performance. it's 
you know, food, 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 as you said, which, you know, a, a plant-based or plant-predominant eat more whole foods because the average person is eating mostly refined and animal-based foods. It's to sleep more. It's to move plenty. It's to spend time in nature. Avoid stress. And avoid, avoid unnecessary, un unnecessary antibiotics. Great one, Steve. That's great. Okay, great moving system. straight on to poo. Okay. Poo, poo, poo. How this many times should we poo? Okay, this is something that society doesn't like talking about. And defecation, poo, whatever type of word you Runny teams ones, use for firm ones, splattery can, ones. <laughs> can we talk to you about how many we should be doing a day and the Bristol stool chart? Everybody poos. Let's put, it, let's put it out there. Everybody poos. And it's part of the human existence. It's part of being a human, okay? And people get embarrassed about it, and I wish they weren't embarrassed about it. Um, even be, people coming in to see you, do they? Of course they're, they're embarrassed about it. Yeah. But even, even us, we're talking about now, we're all laughing, yeah. you know? Um, you know, we're making a joke about it. But mm. it's just a very basic human function. Yeah, I, I even said the word splattery. And everyone giggles. But I think like onomatopoeia, because you can just hear splatter. And, so, and, and it, but it, everyone can relate to it. Like everyone listening can go, oh yeah, it sounds awful. It sounds bad. But it's like everyone goes, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm afraid I've, I've done them there. too. Bro. Everybody poops. So yeah. when you, you know, as a gastroenterologist, you spend a lot of time talking to people about their bathroom habits. Let's be honest. So sometimes you wonder, is there anything such as a normal bowel habit, right? Because like, like every aspect of human behavior and... Um, and metabolism, you know, everybody's pretty unique. But we do, we do have a few reference points. You mentioned the Bristol stool chart, right? So first I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll tell you like the concerns I have about it, okay? Oh, nice. so, so the Bristol stool chart is widely used in clinical practice. If you're listening to the podcast right now, press pause, Google Bristol stool chart. And what will pop up on your screen? It's kind of interesting. It's one kind of, to it's seven kind of, from like dry like, to wet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Solid. And, and you'll see everything that goes from like sheep droppings to a big sloppy mess. Okay. And everything in between. Right. Hard pellets, big sloppy mess. And it's it's rated one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And if you generally ask a health professional, where should I be on the chart? They will say you should be around a three, a four, or a five. So kind of a firm formed log or sausage shaped item that you know <laughs> that holds together in the toilet that that's what we say is a normal poop and we also say well yeah the normal thing is to poop once a day that's normal if you're opening your bowels once a day that's normal and 90% of people will go between once every 3 days and 3 times a day so that's the textbook answer. Wow, wow. That's the textbook then, answer. But you're not a textbook gastroenterologist. Like you're not. You really are in you the cutting are, edge. You are in so many ways. You, and you also are. you're very progressive in that. Like you're a very progressive and you've got a very much, you know, you're very much plant-based and very much lifestyle-based as well as all the other kind of solutions which there are out there. So what would your views on that? Because well, if you're you look, not textbook. Well, if you, you look, are if and you're you, not. So we look at the Bristol stool chart, right? And that is used all over the world. Yeah. Okay. And in every gastroenterology clinic, it's there. And it, it, it's helpful because I think when people come into the room and they, they've got to talk to the doctor about what their bowel habits are like, sometimes having that chart can be helpful. Because they can just go, I, yeah, number there. two. And, and it opens up the conversation. And it opens up the conversation like... and it demystifies. But the Bristol stool chart was designed in Bristol, England, um, in the late 90s. Um, how did they do it? Well, they wanted to, to, to develop this chart that we could use in clinical practice. So they got 66 volunteers and they got them to describe their poo what their bowel habit was like, how often they went, what their poo looked like. And then they gave them a medication called loperamide, which makes you constipated. And then they described what their poos looked like. And those were the type one, type two stools that are on the chart. And then they gave them a laxative, a stimulant laxative called Senna, which makes you poo more often. 
and that sent them rushing to the toilet and they described those poos and those were six and they're on the chart, they're six and seven. So when they weren't on those medications, they had type three, four or five. Okay. And the wow. concept that one bowel movement per day is normal comes from relatively small studies done in the UK, Sweden, US and other high income countries. Okay. Wow. So just think about that. So all of these bowel habit benchmarks are Western, are from high income, Westernized countries where we eat a standard American 50% of calories diet. ultra processed, probably 30 to 40% animal based foods and less than 10% so health So some of the foods. most fiber deficient populations in the world with high rates of irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticular disease, colorectal cancer, and generally awful digestive health. So now we've taken our benchmark mm. for bowel action from the countries with the worst digestive health in the world. So why, 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 why shouldn't, shouldn't we be taking our information from other countries where people have really good digestive health? Where and what the, are those countries? Well, if you look at countries that traditionally eat a very high fiber diet, if you go to any of the blue zones, so, you know, Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica, Icaria, Greece, if you look, you know, the traditional Okinawan uh, diet that's been, you know, published in the Journal of the American uh, Medical Academy like 20 years ago. So high fiber, unprocessed, plant predominant diet, 97% of calories. grams of fiber per day. Exactly, right? So Where's the, the average West? Because you said that earlier, the average person in the UK or Ireland gets about 13, 14, to 14 to 15 grams of fiber. Yeah, or maybe 18 really grams of fiber per day. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, even, they're, you know, they're not even coming close to the minimum, which is 30. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're nowhere near the optimum, uh, which is probably 50 to 70. I mean, you probably have 18 grams of fiber for breakfast every day. So, it, But this has been studied too. So there are, how often do you go to the toilet? How much poop does a healthy person produce? So we know, in, in for example, studies show that in Sweden and England, um, the average person poops out 150 grams per day. And most of it is bacteria. Most is bacteria. In New grams. York, the average person poops out about 100 grams wow, per so day. So where's the extra 50? Why do, why do the UK they don't need... much bacteria. Though, well, they're not, so they're, we need better sewage treatment plants in the UK and in than Sweden. New York, yeah, yeah. I mean, New York's Maybe it's be, just being efficient. Well, that's it, but we're efficient. But then if you look at countries where you eat a traditional high-fiber diet, like rural Africa, etc., and they've got really low rates of colorectal cancer and Crohn's disease and also colitis and all those conditions generally have excellent digestive health. Um, it's a different story. How many times a day? How many grams today? How many grams today? This is a great question. About 500 so grams a day. 500? Oh my God. 500 so grams a day. So if you're, if you're putting out 500, and that's, you know, I'm giving you evidence-based stats here, but not it. making this up. <laughs> I mean, so if you eat a healthy, high-fiber, whole food, plant-based diet, like the Half healthiest people in the world... Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the thing, isn't it? Go vegan, do epic poops, you know? Because <laughs> when you, most of what you poop out is actually uh, microbes being shed from your gut microbiome. So the majority of that waste that you poop out, it's water and microbes. And then there's some residual protein. There'll be, you know, other byproducts. There'll be bile that's been broken down because you're poop that brown color. But most of what you're pooping out is gut microbes. And if you were eating a healthy, high-fiber diet, like the healthiest people in the world, and we're back to the microbiome again, you're going to have a higher volume of poop. So for anyone who's making the change to a whole food plant-based diet, one of the things they notice is, yes, they're visiting the bathroom more often. They're going to not see- Not to have baths either. Well, not to have baths either. They're going to see more poop. They're going to see it more often. 
and the science says that well, this is a healthy development. And so, so what? Do, so, so, so okay. So, can so, I go summary level in terms of so summary level? Okay, so uh, that was this is so interesting. So UK 150 grams per day, <laughs> US about uh, New York, New York 100 grams a day, Central Africa about 500 grams a day. In the UK and in Sweden, it's typically one to three times every three days. It's it's the average be once a day. Average be once a day. So what about when you look in in these people that have healthy, super healthy digestive? Well, David, which Flynn, are plant based. How often do you poop a day? Plenty. Don't be embarrassed. Certainly two to three, I'd say. Yeah, yeah certainly yeah. two anyway. Steve, yeah, it'd be two to three. Yeah, I would say three to four times per day. Oh, oh you yeah. get a bonus one. Yeah, but, but you <laughs> depends know, on the day, like. Yeah, exactly what you've eaten the previous day, right? Yeah. But but look, everybody poos. We just confirmed. Okay, it's, it's sorry, it's three to four. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we just confirmed that yes, we all poop, just like everyone who's listening to this thing. But if you eat a healthy, high fiber diet, yes, you're going to see more poop. You're going to see it more often, and this is a good thing. Gastroenterologist approved. Boom. Wow. Very good. Top level, more poo, better. Yeah. Try more to keep poo, it, keep it energy solid. So Bristol stool start, stool chart, just to come back to where we started. So three, fours and fives. This is based on a study of purely 66 people, wasn't it? So it's not a huge, like massive big I'm population sure study or a meta-analysis. But in essence, our poo ideally should be reasonably solid and less like splattery or less like... Watery splattery. Or any, I, I, any I don't, comments I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we got bias. a good answer for that. Okay. I don't think we got a good answer for that. Because if you look at uh, populations where they do eat a higher fiber diet, they're producing at 470 grams per day. I'm not sure that's on the Bristol stool chart. Mm. You know, that kind of large volume of yeah, yeah. cohesive soil. That It's interesting. I remember reading a book years ago that, um, about this um, person who'd grown up in rural China and they referred to their bowel movements as soil. <laughs> that was the word they used. That's amazing because you human error, like if you look at, like I remember human, human error, like I, I spent time in, in intentional communities in Missouri and various mm. different places. Mm. And we'd always, you know, we'd do our poos and composting toilets and then we'd put it through sawdust and then you'd leave it compost again. And human error was a really important resource for growing vegetables because mm. there was such bacteria biodiversity. Mm. Which and most people, like, the thought of that kind of goes, I'm not eating their vegetables. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's but if you think about it, most vegetables grown are cow's poos are, is yeah. one of the, yeah, you know, well, the well, healthiest. Well, it's yeah, strange yeah. that we live in a culture nowadays that is so anti-poo. Like, you know, it's like, oh my God, it's so disgusting. Well, it celebrates like, sterility and it sterilates hygiene and modernity. And, well, you know, no, you but there's, but there's, you there's some good that. human reasons that too. I mean, Absolutely. you know, if Cholera, you once you're human manure has been sitting around for a while it, it, it you know it's a it's an incredibly microbial rich environment and you know animal manure will often um i mean there's a lot of bacteria that are in your gut microbiome that if they get into your bloodstream if you have a cut in your hand and you get exposed to that they're going to get in your blood they're going to make you sick you mm -hmm. know they're going to make you unwell so there's good i think probably good societal reasons why people have learned to keep to the waste away mm. um but it's still it's still a normal human function and you know i'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying we need to uh yeah, where, i remember where it was there was a, a kind of a, a good movement where they were trying to you know start to capture this human urine not see it as this kind of waste resource and that this was kind of an inefficient waste anyway, anyway yeah, one thing. That's okay really, really interesting. two more ra rapid fire ones before rapid fire because you're doing really good with the rapid fire app but it's so <laughs> fascinating do vegans really have healthier guts? Because one word, thing, vegan, okay. vegan is quite binary. One, people 
either are into it or they hate it. And be- vegan can mean I can eat vegan hot dogs, vegan fries, vegan ice creams, and not healthy. So when I talk about vegan, I'm largely talking about whole food plant-based, which is the healthier side of a vegan. So does someone who eats a whole food plant-based diet have a healthier gut? And I think we all know the answer having come well, this far. Well, we talked about the gut microbiome stuff earlier, but on a very practical level, and I'll try and keep it quick fire. If you look at You're the, doing great, Al. You're doing great. If you look at the Seventh-day Adventist population, Loma Linda, California, one of the healthiest populations in the world, for religious reasons um, and cultural reasons, they eat a plant-predominant diet. Um, about one in eight eat only plants. And the Loma Linda Seventh-day Adventists who do eat animal products don't eat very much at all. They, they'd be like low meat consumers. And some of them are vegetarian and some of them are vegan. So if you look at that population, they're among one of the healthiest populations that have been well-documented on earth. They live in a high-income country, the home of the standard American diet. Yet they live for an average 10 good years longer than the average American. Okay. Wow. And food, and food is so important to human health. What are they eating? Predominantly plants. Their risk of digestive cancer is, uh, is about, 35, about 35 to 36% lower. Their risk of colon cancer is about 30% lower than the US average. And even among the Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists who don't eat any meat at all, their risk of bowel cancer is about 36% lower than the US average. So on that metric, like a lot of metrics, um, yes, a... Uh, you know, a low meat diet is healthier than a very meaty diet. A pescatarian diet is healthier than a low meat diet. A whole food plant-based diet on many measures is healthier than a pescatarian diet because you're just putting in more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soybeans and nuts and seeds. So on that metric, I would say mm. yes. And on many other metrics, yes. Yeah, And then yeah. even that leads me right into the next question. Next rapid fire question is you said there, you were talking there about meat or whatever. And on the, the complete polar opposite of what we've been talking about here, you do meet very smart people and they're on a, a carnivore diet or some kind of ketogenic animal-based diet, which is predominantly animal-based foods like mm. steak for lunch and steak for dinner. And they're eating, you know, goat's milk and colostrum and liver for breakfast or whatever, like which is the polar opposite of the way we eat. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? And how has this become a kind of, you know, a, somewhat of a cult? So why don't I recommend it, I guess? Or, 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 um, why, or what are your thoughts on it, really? Well, I think, you know, for a lot of those um, people who eat like that, um, they have removed so many other foods from their plate that if there was any food that was causing them any digestive symptoms or fatigue or tiredness or anything or sugar processed foods or anything, they've removed them. You know, they've removed them. So that could be beneficial. Um, so but the processed foods. Yeah, exactly. So they, they may have removed a bunch of other stuff. Um, we see... That movement is predominantly coming out of the United States, right? Where we know dietary intakes in general are very, you know, poor. poor. Yeah. Um, so maybe they're getting some improvement in that regard. But when we look at what that does to our gut microbiome, I mean, there was a study back in 2014 just looking at what that kind of, you know, low fiber, animal-based, high fat, high uh, animal like protein. The Atkins, type the Atkins carnivore approach um, what does that do to your gut microbiome? Well, it reduces your gut microbial diversity, increases the production of all the harmful substances that we just talked about, which you're not going to notice the negative effect of that maybe today or tomorrow. Well, you'll notice your bowel habit effects today or tomorrow, right? Because if but you it visit slows the... Right up. Slows right up. And if you visit the um, carnivore you know, support groups, 
you'll see them talking ironically about fiber supplements, you know? So what's the best fiber supplement to help me get the most out of my carnivore diet? And they're sitting there, well, fruits and vegetables would probably be the best uh, <laughs> fiber supplement, you know? But they're using, you know, fiber supplements like um, uh, Metamucil and stuff like that. And they're getting constipation and diarrhea and their digestive health is going nuts. And we know that the, you know, in, in many ways, that's, uh, I know Simon Hill, our mutual friend recently described the carnivore diet as a, gut microbiome starvation diet. So we know that a saccharolytic plant-fueled gut microbiome is incredibly favorable for our digestive health. We know that a proteolytic gut microbiome, which is a gut microbiome which is fed from animal products, from animal protein, only, like there was this paper studied just uh, published recently that said the byproducts of a proteolytic gut microbiome are in the vast majority of cases harmful to human health. So you're only generating the negative postbiotics. There was a study published in the UK in the last two years from the UK Biobank. Now the, the, from the UK Biobank. So the UK Biobank is like a really incredibly interesting resource on food and health and digestive health and all that. So they've got data on about half a million UK volunteers and they know what they eat do they smoke do they go to the gym are they overweight are they underweight do they have a family history and what they eat predominantly right and they published a paper i think it was last year which was looking at the top reasons for being hospitalized and food so what affected eating red meat processed meat and poultry meat so chicken and that sort of thing have on the top 25 reasons to be admitted to hospital. And in every, in, in 24 of the top reasons to be admitted to hospital, which are exactly what you'd imagine, uh, pneumonia, heart attack, diabetes, a lot of gut health problems drive people into hospital. So in that top 25, you've got things like precancerous bowel polyps, uh, perforated diverticular disease, duodenal ulcer, gastric ulcer, et cetera, et cetera, gastroesophageal reflux disease. In all the top 24 reasons for being admitted to hospital, eating meat either did nothing at all to reduce your risk, which is in stark contrast to eating fruit and vegetables we discussed, so either didn't make you healthier or increased your risk of being hospitalized and substantially increased one's risk of precancerous bowel polyps, diverticular disease, gallbladder disease, diverticular disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to digestive health, those are the foods that increase your risk of developing a disease. So why would you choose to eat a diet that is made up exclusively of those foods? In my view, it's a ticking time bomb. Mm. And yeah. you, you, might, you may feel or you may think <laughs> or you may even in actuality see some short-term benefits. You may lose some weight. You may, you know, people talk about, oh yeah, I'm concentrating better and my life is easier and you know, eating this way aligns with my values. But ultimately, I think long-term, you're storing up a hell of a lot of trouble for the future, for your gut health and your overall health. Yeah, I remember there was a family friend who, this is probably 15 years ago, he was on a, a version of an Atkins-type diet where it was very much meat-based and that type of thing. And I remember we hadn't seen him in a number of years and then we went and met him again and he just looked so swollen. You know, I, I just could see it because we hadn't seen him in years and his breath smelled very bad. And uh, yeah. And, you know, when we look, so, so if, we're, if we're trying to improve people's digestive health, so 
you know, we talked a lot about things like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and colitis earlier, right? We, we just want to treat their whole, the whole person. We just don't want to treat their digestive health. So whatever dietary advice or medication or anything that we're asking them to do, it should be aimed at improving their overall longevity and health as well. And we know that a low carb, high animal protein diet on average reduces your life expectancy, increases your risks of multiple diseases. So if carnivore was a tablet or a prescription or a drug, I don't think it would get a license. You wouldn't be allowed to prescribe it. There aren't any dietary guidelines in the world that recommend a carnivore diet. So when you look at the dietary guidelines, the healthy dietary guidelines in the UK or the US or Canada or Sweden or wherever, and they have differences and you can argue the science on some of the uh, finer points, the inclusion of dairy or not, um, whether people should even be eating red meat at all or should they have beans. So you can argue those finer points. But the, what's the core thing that they all have in common? Fruits, vegetables, oh. whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds. And for someone on a carnivore diet, these foods are forbidden, right? They're, they're, they're just, they're not even there. And I think some people take pride in saying, you know, the first thing you got to do to get healthy is ignore all the nutritional science in the world, ignore all the healthy dietary guidelines in the world, because we've cracked it and we figured it out. It's just not true. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good one. Good one. Okay. Final question before we land this plane is tell us about the Good Health Revolution course and why, why if anyone's listening, kind of thinks uh, And kind of has digestive issues or just wants to improve their microbiome health, what, what, are, the, what, what are the benefits and, you know... Well, I think I think the way we put the course together, I mean, it's firmly evidence-based. You've got a great team. You've got Stephen Dave in the kitchen. Woo. You've got Alan and Rosie in the classroom. Woo. And you've got Simone Venner in your earbuds calming your gut-brain axis. So it's not just about food. It kind of ticks all those right boxes for gut health. But I think the most important thing is the community. And that's the beauty of these online courses, because if you are a gut health nerd and you want to improve your health in a supportive environment, you may not have people around you who are on the same same track. You may not be surrounded by people who support you in making these healthy changes, but we've got you covered because we have this wonderful online community. Um, last time I checked, I think there's almost 1500 people in that online community who are all on the same journey as you are and we'll not only will we show you practical things you don't have to do everything on the course you don't have to do the mindfulness and the kitchen and the classroom course you can dip in just do one of them if you wish but if you dip into the whole thing not only will we give you all these healthy habits but we'll also tell you the why and you know we've got nice classroom course with me and rosie going through things like food sensitivities and celiac disease and SIBO and lectins and all that so you can actually learn a lot about gut health as well mm, yeah no it's brilliant i guess we've seen it over the last five years having supported so many people through it that it's and even talking about you i just it reminds me of how important this is and how we need to inspire more people genuinely to start adopting a plant predominant or plant-based or plant exclusive diet well said. They're nice. Al, you're amazing. Your book is The Good Health Revolution. It came out a year and a half uh, ago, wasn't it? Plant-based diet revolution. Plant plant plant-based yeah. plant diet revolution. It's three, four years. Um, no, I think it's only two. No, it's about 14 months ago. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Pandemic wow. time is even Pandemic worse. time. Oh, Pandemic I can't. Time. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Why well, you forget all these things? Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, the book's been doing great. Plant-based diet revolution. Um, and it's been for a while now. So you pick up a copy cheap, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just... 
if you enjoy getting into gut health and food and recipes and you like pretty food. Yeah, Bob's it's a good great. One. It's a good one. Bob's yeah, one for really, Bob that's, Andrew, one That's for the chef, chef who uh, wrote lots of the recipes for yeah, Dr. Al's book. And uh, if you're interested in good health... Um, Revolution. Re- good health, just content. Check Al out on Instagram. He goes nerdy with science lots and it's very cool. Yeah, it really is. It's really, really, really detailed. Uh, Dr. Alan Desmond. Dr. Yeah. Alan Desmond, isn't it? Yep, that's Blake, me. Boom, that's me. Al, Great. you're amazing. Thank you, Al. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Wonderful to do it in person. It's been lovely. It's been absolutely lovely to do it in person. I love guts. I love guts. I love guts. I really enjoyed the conversation about poo. I know as society, most people don't like talking about poo, but um, yeah, thought that yeah. bit was fascinating. 500 gram whoppers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving away from this toilet talk, that was such a great conversation. Dr. Al is a total legend. I want to learn more about short chain fatty acids. I genuinely do. I'm curious about it. So, yeah. okay, nice. There we go. Um, uh, just to finish up, just to say that we have our Good Health Revolution course. It is starting on April 11th. As a society, we need a Good Health Revolution. This is with Dr. Al. It's with dietitian and Rosie Martin and there's and uh, really really it's a great way for you to learn more about your good health and become an ambassador for this good health revolution that we need as a society to connect us more to nature to ourselves more health energy and vitality so Woo! there we anyway go. it's starting April 11 details are done in the show notes or if you go into this thing called Google and type in the happy pair good health revolution I'm sure something will come up yeah. anyway thank you for listening thank you for being part of this we adore it and uh, if you share an Instagram story we will share it too wishing you a wonderful day bye Tally-ho. bye 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 bye